So as Aaron, Father Aaron said, I, this is 20 years in Chicago for me this summer. That makes me feel a lot older than I am. Um, I still believe I'm like a 25-year-old on the inside. But um, I've lived on the south side, the north side, and the west side of Chicago. I'm the only person I know in the city who's like this right now. If you have, then come on, let's be friends. Uh, it's been a, it's, and I love Chicago, and I, I love experiencing the city and all of that it is. Um, I, I loved my time at Northwestern. It, Northwestern is hugely foreign of me. I actually see a couple of my uh, former students in the audience, which is very cool to see you all there, um, and who are InterVarsity alums from there. And I think what was so great about my time there is two things. One, if you haven't noticed this yet, I'm white. And uh, just a clarification question there. And uh, I realized in my time there, the beautiful thing about our ministry at Northwestern was that there was no ethnic majority. So for the first time in my life, I had to be part of an experience where I was not in dominant culture. Hugely formative in my life, hugely understanding. And so I learned a few things about that. I learned there are certain congregational contexts where there is a dialogue or a conversation where the audience talks back to you. So if any of you are from that tradition, you are welcome to do that right now. You are welcome to be yourself here. That is an important part of what it means to bring your true self and your true uh, identity to the congregation that we have. So if you want to say amen today, you can do that, okay? Thank you. <laughs> Conversation, that's right. I think the other thing that was so interesting about my time at Northwestern was I really got to learn about this, uh, how do we really you know, do spiritual formation in the lives of students? How do we help them integrate their whole being including their faith into their academic lives. And I, the cool thing about working with students is that every year you could try something, you just say, yeah, this is just an annual thing we do because they don't know any better. There's this natural attrition rate called graduation that just happens all the time, boom, 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 boom. And one year we were trying to, this new, uh, how many of you ever heard of the Ignatian tradition called the prayer of examine? Has anyone ever heard of that? Okay, cool, you're smart. Um, so the prayer is really like honestly it's like the five o'clock or six o'clock news of your day you go in at the end of the day and you ask you get quiet you get your soul to a space where it can be quiet enough and you ask the Holy Spirit to come and say Lord help me see my day the way I should have seen it today and so you walk through your day and you invite the Lord you just say I got up I showered I got to work, I saw this homeless person, and all of a sudden, something happened in my heart when I saw that homeless person, right? This is what the prayer of examine does. We review our day, and all of a sudden, we see our day with new eyes. Well, I was trying this with my students, because that's what I do. I, I like to experiment, I like to do pilots and all those things. Um, and there was one day where I was working and typing, and I'm kind of a techie, I work for a technology consulting firm. I like my, I like my toys confession on those like I had a, I've had a smartphone since 2005 um, before they were cool I did not have like the brick phone of the 90s if you were wondering about that but one of the things that I would do is uh, I I was getting all my stuff ready to go and I printed I'm like where's my charger for my laptop and I couldn't find it anywhere it was in the office and I was like tore the office upside down I went to my car I turned the car upside down I couldn't find it there I drove home because it's, home was just a mile away. I turned my house upside down. I couldn't find it there. And I'm like, okay, I went back to my car, turned my car upside down again because I've been known to do this sometimes. And then I go back to my office. I turned it up, up, upside down again. Cannot find my charger. I have 5% battery left. Can, can I get an amen on this one? Anyone ever feel that? 
So I do what I can't do. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can only be without this charger for probably a day. So I get on the phone and call. And I call the, because this was like a next generation Japanese company. That's because I'm a nerd. I told you this. And I went and called. I said, hey, what can, can I get this battery shipped to me like next day? And they're like, sure, $100. I'm like, you're kidding me, right? You're kidding me, Smalls. Like, this is terrible. And so all of a sudden, I get the, I say, all right, fine. I get my credit card. I'm just like so frustrated. And it's cold outside. It's winter. We all know that this is like the best time in Chicago. We all know that January and February, it's cold, it's dark, it's dreary. And I go out into the parking lot, and I'm just so mad, right? And all of a sudden, what do I see in the parking lot? In the snowbank next to me. But my charger. And so at this point in time, like, okay, this kind of mixed feelings, right? Like, yes, my charger, blankety blank, why did I just drop this off here and drop 100 bucks on this other thing? So there's mixed feelings, right? And so all of a sudden, I get back to home, and I don't realize I have to do this prayer of examine thing tomorrow with my students because I committed myself to it, and so I have to, like, do this on my own. And so I sit down, and I'm, pure, and I'm, I'm not the greatest human on the planet, just, you know, spoiler alert. And I'm purely doing this out of, like, obligation. All right? Because i got to talk to my students about this tomorrow. And I sit down, and I get really quiet. And I ask the Lord to show me that. And what image just leaps in my head right there? That charger. And the Lord kind of comes in and says, why are you so angry? That's a whole other conversation. Right? Right? All of a sudden, I, for the next 30 minutes, I'm with my journal. I'm just like, why am I so angry? What's going on? Why is this inanimate object that's causing me this frustration level feeling this? That's what happens in life, right? This is the way, well, all of a sudden, something happens, and maybe we get quiet enough on the inside to recognize that something's there, and there's something real. Now, normally on a typical week, I would say, okay, well, <laughs> I would talk about you're in traffic and it hits you, right? Or your spouse loaded the dishwasher wrong and it hits you. Or you, you, get an email, you get an email from a client or your boss and it hits you and there's something going on. But you know what? This week, this week's different. How many of you have reflected on this week and just said, Lord have mercy, right? Or just be like, why again, right? And, and when I did the prayer of examine this week, I was just struck, you know, and I would start with my day. Tuesday morning, wake up, 64 shootings in Chicago. And that's a good year for us. Wednesday morning, wake up, <laughs> Alton Sterling in uh, Baton Rouge. Thursday morning, wake up. In the morning, um, you know, Philando Castile. Friday morning, wake up. Dallas, five officers killed. And I can tell you, like, my heart this week, you know, I was like, okay, Saturday morning, Lord, like, what's, what's, what's going to happen? And, like, it's just kind of like, what, what is going to happen today? What is next? I don't know how you were feeling this week, but I just hit it, and I was like, oh. Oh, it's like body blow after body blow after body blow. And thank God we have a prayer book in the Bible 
that is honest. And that's where um, we were going to go. We're going to start in Psalm 86. Uh, because the beautiful thing about the Psalms, and Aaron alluded to this, was that we need a place where honest conversation with God about the honest state of our world is real. I, 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 what I, one of the things I love is um, being a campus minister who's, uh, you know, when I was a campus minister at Northwestern, now I'm in the marketplace. And so I kind of have eight years of my resume that you can't really eliminate to say like, wow, what did you do for those eight years? So I have to talk about my faith at some level in my regular life, in my conversations, because that's just, that was eight years of my professional career. And so uh, when I talk, when people talk with me about the Bible, and they, I say like, you know, the Bible's actually really interesting. There's a lot of stuff there that you'd never imagine. It's not like pie in the sky advice. There's some real dark stuff. And at the same time, we're going to talk about one of the episodes that's going to be that's a real challenge in the life of um, in the life of David in this psalm, and we're going to start with Psalm 80, 81, verse six, uh, excuse me, eighty-six, verse one. And the first verse uh, is very simple. It's like, "Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy." Now I have nieces and nephews. I have twelve of them. And there's a certain show that we've learned to come to watch in the family over the years. It's called Blue's Clues. Is anyone familiar with Blue's Clues here? All right. So there's a mystery here at the beginning of the psalm. Why is David poor and needy? Oh, right? So this is where context clues are helpful. And this is why my mother, who's just a recently retired teacher, loves Blue's Clues because she's teaching context clues to my nieces and nephews. It's brilliant. But I think the big question with David is why is David poor and needy. And if you jump down a little bit later in verse 14, he says, uh, oh God, insolent men have risen against me. And so the question is, okay, so this is a good context clue. What's happening? And it's my uh, opinion on this one, and not everyone agrees with me, so you can argue with me if you want. But this is the story of David and his son Absalom. Now this is some context. I'm going to have to talk about it a little bit more here, because I think it's helpful to understand the life of David and Absalom. So David had lots of kids. I'm going to talk about three of those kids, a brother and a sister and a half-brother. The brother and sister are Absalom and Tamar, and the half-brother is Amnon. Now, just so you know, one that talks about the Bible and talks about families as being really helpful and healthy, yeah, this was a dysfunctional family too. So if you come from a dysfunctional family, like I do and we all do, you have role models in the scriptures. But this one, this one was particularly dysfunctional. Because what you see happening here is that uh, Amnon is infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar. And because we have the kids here today, I can't give you the details, but let's just say Amnon does something very terrible that is a violation that should never, ever happen in humanity. It's awful, it's terrible, and it's wrong. And that act of violence sends brother Absalom fuming and plotting and scheming for two years to murder his brother Amnon. And that means David has to cover something up in his family because this is the royal family. The royal family can't exactly have all this happening going on. And so what happens is Absalom goes away to a far-off country for three years, goes to his wife's family to kind of let things settle and cool down. And then what you see happening after that is that after three years, uh, 
Absalom sends to see, hey, is it okay for me to come back? Now again, Absalom is David's son, and, and he loves Absalom. He loves him. And, but at the same time, there's a real dysfunction here because David, over time, has grown to love his kingdom a little more than some things. And so he says, when it comes to Absalom returning, he says, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. In other words, David says, you can come back and I will pardon you. But if you want your father back, your father is king and king comes before father. And so David shuns his son Absalom. Absalom resolves and says, you love the kingdom more than me? I'll, live the king I'll love the kingdom more than you. And I'll plot for the next four years and scheme and build, build coalitions and alliances and, get, and steal the kingdom out from underneath you. And so what happens is, is that uh, for f over four years, he finally finds the right time, and then he says, um, David's messengers come in after uh, Absalom brings in a, a garrison and t begins the coup and take over, and David's, counsels, uh, David's friends come to him and say, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. David knows, I got to get out of here or I'm dead because Absalom had sent someone to murder David. So David is on the run and goes back to the wilderness. Now all this is context for what we're setting up here in verse, starting in verse 1 and verse 86. But I, if you know the life of David, the wilderness is a good place for him because it's there where he gets clarity on what life is all about. The last time he was there, he was oppressed. Uh, some of you may remember the story of David when he was ascending king after he, be he beat Goliath and was on the rise as a king, and guess what? Saul, the current king, saw him as a threat and began to try to kill him. So he went to the wilderness. The last time David was in the wilderness, he was, a he was the oppressed. He was the weak one. And now all of a sudden, he's in the wilderness again, and at first glance, he is the oppressed again. But this is why I think it's so helpful to think about. And one of the books that I've read in Getting in the Life of Dave, if you've never read this, it's an amazing, wonderful book. It's called Leap Over a Wall by Eugene Peterson. And there's a short segment here I want to, he interprets a lot of this I feel like is better than what I could ever say about the relationship between Absalom, David, and, uh, and Amnon. Sin fed on sin. The rape of Tamar fed to the murder of Amnon, which fed into the hard-heartedness of David. David responded to Amnon's sin by sinning. Then David responded to Absalom's sin by sinning. Absalom got rid of Amnon by killing him, and then David got rid of Absalom by shunning him. David lost his son Amnon because of the sin of Absalom. David lost his son Absalom by his own sin. The rejection of Absalom by David was a steady, determined refusal to share with his son what God had so abundantly shared with him. Day by day, he hardened in this denial of love. This was sin with a blueprint. This was sin that required a long-term commitment, comprehensive strategy. Jerusalem was a small city. Scrupulous care was necessary to avoid seeing or being seen by Absalom. And so Absalom gave up hope of intimacy with his dad and determined to take things into his own hands. He planned to do what had been done to him. 
I bring this up because in the state of our country today and what we're experiencing, sin has bred sin. And it's, it's all over. Like, it was like literally reading this week as I was reading the news and I was reading the scriptures. I'm like, wow, like things don't change. They really don't. And that's why when David gets to the wilderness, he gets quiet and he gets and sets down and all of a sudden he gets to look at his day just like we do in the prayer of examine and recognize, I see the enemy and he is me. David, by shunning his son, Create a monster. And, and that's why verse 1 starts when he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve your, my life, for I am godly. David's life is in danger, right? His son is on the move to kill him. And he says, Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. And again, verse, continue on, verse 3. Uh, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. David says, be gracious to me, because guess who he wasn't gracious to? His son. It continues on, gladden the soul of your servant. Gladden the soul because David's depressed. Why? I mean, think of the situation he's in. He is about to lose everything, and all of a sudden, everything he's ever worked for, he's in the wilderness, he's depressed. Spoiler alert, there are other depressed psalms in the scriptures. If you struggle with depression, you can have an ally in the scriptures. They're there. It's real. Uh, and then he says, For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. He goes to the place, the only place that he knows that he can get help. Verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. If you are an underliner, please underline that because it's going to come a couple more times. Steadfast love to all who, come, who call upon you. See, Again, David sees his own self and says, I did not abound in steadfast love for my son, but Lord, you abound in steadfast love for me. That, that word steadfast love is translated from a couple different ways. If you want to, uh, it's sometimes called loving kindness. It's sometimes just called uh, loving, or, uh, faithful, faithful love. It's, the Hebrew word is hesed. And it's really not, we don't have a good word in English to really kind of capture it. It's basically like this, I am going to never let go of you, love. Never let go of you, love. And, and that's the type of God that David knows. And that's why he says, you know, give ear, O Lord, verse 6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. Again, listen to my plea for grace. David did not give grace to his son, and he did not listen to his son. I am the enemy, and he is me. David sees it and understands, like, oh, my goodness, like, what, what have I done? In the wilderness, David recovers his basic elemental self. And suffering leads him to humility. Suffering leads him to prayer. Suffering leads him to compassion. What if the events of our world to this week, of our, and we're going to have a chance to practice later, they led us to prayer, to compassion, and humility. See, eventually what happens with David is that after this, this is what he says about, now, if you were, if, if again, I've told you I'm not the most, I'm not the greatest human on the planet, and if I were in David's shoes, 
I would be so mad at my son. But you know what David comes to later on? He says this. He says, when asked about how to deal with his son Absalom, everyone, the standard operating procedure of that day would be to kill him. What David says is this later on in 2 Samuel 14. Deal gently for, this, for my sake with the young man Absalom. He, wants, he doesn't want his son to experience the violence that has been so common in this story already. And that's why, why does he get to that point? Well, this is where, if you continue on the psalm, verses 8 through 10, David sees God for who he really is. It says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. In a culture of that day where there was viewed to be many gods, and I would argue that worldview is still prevalent today with little g-gods, David recognizes that there is none like his God. And that's where he says, All the nations who have made and shall come and worship before you, O Lord, shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. See, this is the picture of who God is that David presents. It's how all the people groups of the planet will someday bow before the Lord because of his loving kindness, his steadfast love. And that his greatness is so great because of that. See, the more David and the more we engage with our planet, the more we understand and get in the grit of this world, we realize three things pretty quick. Number one, the brokenness of our world is infinitely complex. The longer I am, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this more later, but the longer I've been on the world and the planet and understood and more I studied and, and got degrees and that, I just realized, wow, this world is really complex. There is so much. There is so much to this world. And evil is even more complex because people who want to do good things end up doing bad things. And that's where the next thing comes in. The, third, the second thing we realize is I am the enemy and he is me. We are complicit in the problems of the planet by what we do and what we don't do. And we never want to acknowledge that until we see for real, like, oh my gosh, like, like this week, how, how are we complicit with the problems? And, you know, it's, it's really, you start reading, if you start reading more and more and more, you'll realize, wow, our world is really broken. And if I do nothing, that's part of the problem. And that's why it leads to the third thing. If the brokenness of the world is infinitely complex, we're complicit in it. And the third is that we need God. Uh, I love when we have Lent and we say, Kiri eleison, Lord, have mercy. And that's why David continues on in the, verse 11, and he expresses his need for God. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That word, unite my heart, um, I think it expresses the divided nature of who we are. There is parts of us that really want to do good, and there are parts of us that are, don't want to do good. And God and David says, I know that this is within me, and it needs, I need you to unite my heart. I need help. Help. 
And that's why, again, verse 12 continues on. He says, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. Again, steadfast love, hesed, loving kindness. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew term that is translated to Hades and it's hell. It's what Aaron talked about earlier. The reality that God can deliver us from the absence of him if we choose to trust him, if we choose to love him. And skipping to verse 15, it says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There it is again. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. You know, I think what's great about this picture of God is that when you know someone unconditionally loves you, there is no threat of them ever rejecting you. That invites you to bring all of who you are to God. That you can be honest. And this is what happens so often in human relationships, right? We're, we're afraid that if we put stuff out on the table that we're going to be rejected. And all of us have experienced rejection at some level. And when we experience rejection, we, get def- we, we lose our status. We, we get defensive. We run away. There's tons of brain research that will tell you on why we run away from those things, our fight and flight mentalities. It's real. But this is why God is so important in this matter that David describes him this way because he says unconditionally, an unconditionally loving God, you never have to hide things from him. I love uh, one of the most influential authors in me is Philip Yancey. And his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, kind of changed my life uh, when I read it as a college sophomore. And the way he describes grace, he says, there is nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there is nothing you can, make, you can do to make God love you any less. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. And when we get to that place with God, we can bring all of ourselves to him. So, so what does that mean for us as we kind of walk out of here and continue on with our lives? I think, again, it's the place of unconditional love that enables us to be completely honest with him. And being honest with God is what prayer really is. A lot of people are like, what is prayer? Like, do I close my eyes and fold my hands? I'm like, no. That's part of it. That's how I was taught when I was five. I truly believe that, God, that my parents told me to talk to God like this because my hands would be elsewhere all the time otherwise hitting my brothers. I told you I wasn't like the greatest kid in the world. Um, but... I think this allows us to be honest with God. And our prayer is what happens. So literally speaking, our worship service is designed for you to have three awesome segments to practice what, we, what I just preached, right? So number one, prayer of confession. And, you know, as I, at first I was like, I'm not sure about you, but entering into liturgical tradition, I'm, you know, I'm not, this isn't what I grew up in. And so I... I have, there's a prayer of confession. And let's just be honest, sitting in silence for about 30 seconds to a minute can be very awkward sometimes if you've never done that before. I could be silent for 10 seconds here and you'd be like, Andy, stop, talk right now, because that's awkward. But silence is what allows our souls to settle and listen to our lives. 
And that prayer of confession, you can ask yourself, Lord, where this week, from what I've done and what I've not done, has contributed to the problems of the planet? Where have I wronged others or wronged you? You'll have that opportunity soon after I'm done talking. We're going to have a prayers of the people today. That's the second way we can talk about this. And that's where uh, we'll be honest with what's happening around the world. And we're going to pray for it. And prayer is essentially our way of doing battle with the enemy in this regard. We can tell the enemy to say, like, not in my house, not here, get away. This is not happening on my watch. And that means we walk out of here and become the answer to our prayers. Third, after when we, when we take the Eucharist, we have prayer ministers on the edge here. And I, what I love about prayer ministry is that this is a place and time for you to actually to address your dreams of God, both the dreams that are in process and being fulfilled and those dreams that are being deferred. So some of you have an opportunity to say, like, Lord, there's this great opportunity that's happening in front of me, and I, I'm asking you to help. Like, this is, you know, people go to prayer ministry with the opportunity of excitement and wonder and awesomeness. They say, God, bring this, bring this opportunity to real so my dream can be fulfilled. And there are also some of you who said, I've been waiting for this or struggling with this for a long time, and I, I'm, my dream has been deferred. And one of the other psalms is, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And some of you are heart sick. That's what prayer ministry is for. Prayer between prayers of confession and prayers of the people and prayer ministry, this is what allows us to be honest with God. And we can be vulnerable. We can be ourselves. And God's able to meet us in that. And then, finally, the prayer of examine, right? I told you, like, the prayer of examine rocked my world, right? It, it just... That I still have the image of that computer charger in a snowbank in January in a parking lot in Chicago lodged in my brain because it helped me begin to deal with some of the things that I've been dealing with for a long time. Uh, the prayer of examine is very simple. You can Google it online, but essentially you walk, sit down in your chair, you get quiet, and you ask the Lord to say, Lord, let's walk through my day. Help me see my day for how I should have, how I should have seen it today. Because engaging in our broken world is going to cause you to get hurt. But when we engage in a broken world, and you're broken by a broken world, you need to be healed by a loving God. When you're hurt by a broken world, you need to be healed by a loving God. That's a lot of my own story. Um, much of my 20s, were really, uh, was really me trying to figure out the answer. God, how can a good God, an all-powerful God, allow evil and suffering? Maybe a couple of you have asked that question once or twice. I'm not going to go into it right here, but the book of Job, I, I've read that book so many times. And during my 20s, it wasn't just an intellectual issue for me. Uh, I began to, I traveled a lot in my 20s. I lived in Uganda for a couple of weeks and, or excuse me, a month, and spent some time with the Lord's Resistance Army, with survivors of the Lord's Resistance Army, hearing stories of, of um, kids who had their parents executed in front of them. I lived on the west side of Chicago for two summers, and now I live on the west side. Um, lived in the Lawndale neighborhood and, and dwelled in it 
in a church community that was fighting on the front lines and teaching their kids and understanding, wow, this is what it's like to be black in America and the, the issues that they struggle with. And not just understanding them intellectually, but sitting and talking about them on front porches. Later on, when I was in staff with InterVarsity, I, I took a team of students to Cairo, Egypt, and dwelled in a garbage collector's village of an oppressed minority group of people. And, and when I was in all of these places, it wasn't, it, it wasn't necessarily, while it was desire to do good, there was also a deep longing inside of me to say, God, how can this world that's so broken, how, how can you, how do you love us in this? And what I realized over time, and as I passed into my 30s, that was me engaging, but I needed to be loved by God. I was trying to fix the plan without being loved by God. And when I got to this place where I recognized, I need you, Lord. I need to know that you love me. That was where the real inner transformation began to happen. And I realized when I saw that, that charger, why I was so angry. What I loved about my time at Northwestern with students was that we believed that the gospel wasn't just a good idea. University is a great marketplace of ideas. But the gospel is not just a good idea, it's good news. And we're going to experience that today. We're going to experience what it means to receive the body of Christ and to receive prayer from others, to pray for the world. And I ask that you would engage in the rest of our time here in doing that. I pray that in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.